Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A boy and his friend venture into the woods for some fun, for something different. What they stumble upon, however, comes from the void, a place of darkness. The boys decide to do something unwise and tempt fate. With dire consequences, a man takes a route he's traveled many, many times and has come accustomed to his trips on predetermined paths. Yet this time, he takes a detour, one that will affect him profoundly. Welcome, listeners, to your 400th episode of Stories, Fables, Ghostly Tales. Holy moly, I should be saying crikey struth, how's that? <laughs> and other colloquial phrases, right? Gotta love that Aussie slang. But a huge thank you for joining me this far. Seriously, thanks a lot. If you're joining me for the first time, take a trip down memory lane and visit my first episode. Goodness, I think I've come a long way. And with your support, let's make it another 400 episodes, folks. Admittedly, this episode has totally sneaked up on me, so I'm going to make it up to you listeners soon with something different. I've been planning it, but haven't collected all my notes around it. But I promise you, I'll bring something special to the table soon. And now for the stories. Your first story, The Portal in the Woods, is written by Nicholas Gray. And your second story, The Strigil Institute, is written by Caleb Wilson. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for something unique. The Portal in the Woods Dad, you said you'd play catch with me! I yelled as my father walked past me to his office, where he spent most of his days when he wasn't at work. I'm sorry, bud. I've got to get these documents done for tomorrow's big meeting. We'll do it another day, okay? I frowned. That was the same excuse he always gave me. And the same follow-up he always had. We'll do it another day. Yeah, yeah, sure we will. I thought. The longer I stood in front of his door, the more upset I became. I eventually huffed and puffed enough to the point where I stormed out of the house. I left for my go-to place when I was upset, the treehouse. To a 12-year-old kid, a treehouse was the perfect place for a kid to just get away from his problems and be a kid. It was Reese's and my place to go when we were sad, mad or just bored out of our minds. It was our little getaway when things went awry in our lives. We also went there just to hang out. It was our spot. We found the treehouse one day while looking through the woods for buried treasure. We didn't find any treasure, but we did stumble upon the treehouse. We climbed up the ladder and viewed the place from the inside. Reese called it a dump, but I saw the potential in it. I fixed her up, grabbing fold-up chairs, a rug, and a blanket to cover the only window in the wooden box to create the coolest treehouse ever. We kept our comic books, Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and other miscellaneous knickknacks up there. Now that I got the treehouse out of the way... Let me explain to you who Reese is. Reese is my best friend. 
He moved in next door when I was in second grade. We went over their house and introduced ourselves. I went into Reese's room and saw that he had a Nintendo 64. We sat down and played Super Smash Bros. all day. And that first visit became a sleepover, which we spent staying up late playing video games till our eyes became sore, and then some. Reese was a good kid. Sure, he'd get into trouble occasionally, like one time he fed his sister's goldfish to the cat. But he was overall a good kid. He'd get into trouble for sneaking out, and he constantly was a wise-ass to teachers. But again, he was a good kid. And most importantly, my best, my only, friend. That day, Reese was on the last day of his grounding. He was caught sneaking out at night. I was supposed to sneak out as well, but I got cold feet and stayed in bed. Reese went into the treehouse alone, and when he realized I wasn't there, returned home where his parents caught him trying to sneak back in. Reese would always tease me, clucking and calling me a chicken when I did stuff like this. I was sure that once he got loose from the confines of his room, he'd be all up in my ear about it. I entered the woods and was making my way to the treehouse. I was about three quarters of the way there, swinging a stick I found a while back, pretending it was Excalibur. When I saw it, it was a black hole, the size of a bowling ball, levitating at eye level a few feet away from me. It looked like someone took a picture and hole-punched it, leaving a black spot in its place. I approached it curiously. I tried to go around it to get a side view of the thing, but it disappeared. I walked behind where it would have been, and it reappeared. The hole was paper-thin and couldn't be seen from its sides. I looked at it intensely, trying to see if I could see anything inside it. I looked down at Excalibur and lifted it upwards. I slowly inserted the stick into the black hole. Suddenly, like a vacuum, the hole absorbed the stick, forcing me to let go. I fell backwards on my rear end, kicking my legs out and skittering back in a feeble attempt to create distance between the black hole and me. I breathed heavily as I stared at the hole in astonishment. Then the stick spat back out and fell at my feet. I was frozen in place for a good minute. I didn't know what to do. Then I had an idea. I ran over to a tree and grabbed an acorn off the ground. I went up to the hole and chucked the acorn in. I waited a minute. Then the acorn came out, whizzing past my head. Whoa! I said. That's when I had another idea. I went home and grabbed the football from my bedroom. Just in case my dad decided he wanted to play catch with me. I brought it back to the black hole got into a throwing stance, stretched my arm backwards, winding up the shots and then through. Of course, I missed the hole completely. I ran and grabbed the ball, got closer to the hole and threw it underhand. This time it went in. A minute passed, and then the ball popped right back out, and bounced a few times before it rolled up close to me. I smiled and prepared another throw. I got into the stance, stretched my arm backwards, and chucked it as hard as I could. This time the ball went in, no problem. A minute went by, and I just stood in front of the hole. The ball suddenly came out fast, spiraling and hitting me dead in the stomach. I fell to my knees in shock and pain. I wasn't expecting it to come out that hard. 
That's when I realized that it all depended on the strength of my throw. If I throw it weakly, the hole would toss it back with the same momentum. Throw it hard, and it comes back hard. I played catch with the black hole for a good hour, then made my way home. I couldn't wait to show Reese. The next day arrived. It was a Sunday, so after Reese got back from church, I was ready to show my friend the coolest thing ever. When my friend got back home, I quickly ran over to his house and asked his parents if he could hang out. They said, of course, and we went to the treehouse. Dude, I have something amazing to show you. I said, hyped for my friend to see my cool find. Yeah, yeah, sure you do, he responded. We walked about three quarters of the way and started to approach where I'd seen the black hole. That's when Reese spotted it. Whoa, what the hell is that thing? It's a portal, I eagerly said. We looked at it for a good minute and then made our way closer. Throw this into it, I said, unable to hold back the excitement in my voice. I handed him the football and he brought his arm back and threw it in on his first try. I was a little envious, but I had to remember that Reese played baseball, so his aim was going to be better than mine. Now what? He asked. Just wait. A minute went by, even though it felt like an eternity, and the ball finally popped back out and landed on the ground in front of Reese. Reese didn't say anything for a moment, then knelt and picked up the football. He scrutinized it carefully, looking for any scuffs or nicks on the ball. That was pretty amazing, he said in a monotone. I smiled, grabbed the ball back from him, and threw it into the hole once again. We played for a good 30 minutes, and Reese wanted to know how many things could go through the hole. He threw rocks, acorns, and even a worm into the hole. All came out just like they had before. Then we took turns, tossing the football into it. What's on the other side? Reese finally asked. I don't know, space stuff? What if there's like a whole nother dimension on the other side of it? Maybe there's an alternate version of us. I tossed the football into the portal again and waited for its re-emergence. Yeah, I guess it's possible. Aren't you at all curious what's on the other side? I thought for a moment. Yeah, I guess I'm a little curious. Well? Well, what? I asked, confused. Stick your head through the portal. What? No way! I said, backing up, as if to say no with my body. Come on! Don't be a chicken like you were the other night! There it was. The chicken comment. I knew it was coming. I don't care what you say, I'm not doing it. I said, not letting peer pressure get the best of me. Every time he pressured me into doing something, we always ended up in trouble. That's when he began to cluck, bending his arms into his torso to resemble chicken wings. Chicken! 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 He chanted. Look, I'm not doing it. You don't know what could be on the other side. What if there's a monster or something? Come on, man. It's just a portal. Don't you want to know who's been tossing the ball back through it? I didn't think about that aspect of it. I guess there could be someone on the other side, catching the ball and then tossing it back to us. But I still didn't budge in my decision. Pussy! He finally shouted, which hit hard. He'd never called me a pussy before. 
I didn't even know the word was in his vocabulary. I knew the word too, but I'd never dare say it. He began to walk toward the portal, and I shouted to him, What are you doing, Reese? I'm going to look through the portal. I quickly followed him, trying to explain that it was a bad idea, but he wasn't having any of it. Look, you can't be a chicken your whole life. You gotta take chances sometimes. Plus, I want to know who or what has been on the receiving end of our passes. Don't you? I guess, but I don't think it's safe to just poke your head into things you don't understand. Pussy, he said, then bent forward to stick his head into the hole. He hesitated at first, maybe to take in what he was about to do, then plunged his head into the hole. A few long seconds passed by and nothing happened. He just stood there, arms limp at his sides, looking through the hole. I looked around nervously, like we were doing a bad deed, and I was on watch. Then everything happened at once. Reese fell backwards, hitting the ground hard. I stood right behind him and was hit by something warm and wet, as if someone sprayed me with a super soaker with hot water. I looked down at the ground. He was missing his head. His neck leaked copious amounts of blood all over the place. That's when I realized that I was covered in blood. I screamed a scream only a kid could make. Then something flew out of the portal, and I instinctively caught it as it slammed into my chest. I looked down at the thing in my hand and screamed again. It was Reese's head. His face was twisted in horror, like he'd just seen a ghost. His tongue lolled to the side, and his eyes were glazed over. A white milky film covering his barely visible pupils. Memories started flooding into my head. Thoughts of the times Reese and I would play hooky from school. The time we'd sneak out and would tell scary stories to each other in the treehouse, trying to make the other piss his pants. All the fond memories I've ever had of Reese came together all at once, and were shattered with one new horrifying mental scar. My hands began to tremble, and I dropped Reese's head to the dirt and ran away. I kept running till I made it home. I opened the door and slammed it behind me, then ran into the restroom to wipe Reese's blood from my face. I spent a half an hour scrubbing Reese's blood from my face and another, scrubbing the blood off my clothes. I was petrified. I walked out of the restroom and ran up the stairs to my bedroom. I got into bed, even though it was only 6 o'clock, and lay there, mortified. My eyes were wide open, looking straight at the ceiling, staring into space. The image of Reese's body dropping to the ground, and his head landing in my arms, kept playing over and over in my head. Then, after hyperventilating for a good 10 minutes, I fell asleep. I opened my eyes and thought to myself, that was one weird ass dream. But my father knocked me out of that thought when he asked me if I knew where Reese was. Apparently, he didn't come home. And his parents thought that maybe he was over here. They filed a missing persons report the next day, thinking that maybe Reese had run away. After a few days went by, the police decided to do a search of the woods. They spread out and found his decapitated body on the woodland floor. Local news played the story everywhere. 
They were looking for his killer and asked if anybody had any information and that they should call the local police department. I picked up the phone a few times, mostly to clear my conscience, which was eating me alive. But I didn't, because I knew no one would believe me. Who would? Hey, my friend stuck his head through a portal and it bit his head off. Yeah, I'm sure that would be taken seriously. After all this time, one question remains with me though. What did my friend see on the other side of that portal? All credits of this story goes to Nicholas Gray. The Stridgel Institute In central Vermont, you have to drive to get just about anywhere. In high school, once I had my own car, I built up a mental map of roads, good and bad. This giant web linking my house, my school, my friends' houses, my mum's work, my dad's house, and my dad's work. There was this one road I'd often take when I was in a hurry. An unmaintained dirt road that went over a steep hill and turned the hour trip from my house to my dad's house into 45 minutes. Last summer, I was in Vermont to visit my dad, and I thought it would be fun to try out that road, to see how well my mental map has stood up to 20 years of decay. Well, the road had gotten worse, and the rental car got hung up on some ruts just as I was coming to the top. There was no bars on my cell phone, so I got out to walk. It was nice out, but the summer warmth seemed far away over the trees. It had been a while since I drove past anything, so I decided to keep walking the way I'd been driving. After a minute or so, I came to a big house that looked like some rich out-of-status third home. Not a summer home, apparently. At least, not this summer. It was locked up tight, with no cars around and nobody answering my knock, so I kept walking. Just past the top of the hill, a driveway branched off through the trees, parallel to the ridge. A wooden sign there triggered an old memory. Stridgel's Institute Visitors Welcome. I had forgotten part of my mental map after all. The Stridgel Institute sign had been one of my landmarks. One of those places I'd notice whenever I passed them driving around. Like the odd guns and clocks store between my house and dad's work. The witch windows on certain houses that maybe I found more interesting than they actually were. Or the granite whale tail sculpture I'd seen on the way to the dentist's office. This inexplicable institute had once been a personal landmark, but I'd totally forgotten about it. I wonder why I never stopped before turn off and see if visitors really were welcome. Maybe it was the same reason I never bothered going shopping at Guns and Clocks. Or maybe it was always because I was driving hungry to Dad's house. Eager to get there and eat a snack. But now I wasn't hungry, and I couldn't leave anyway, so I headed down the driveway to check the place out. The driveway was about a quarter mile long, curving and dropping a bit so the Institute couldn't be seen from the road. When the trees opened out and I saw the place, I laughed. The name was pretty grand compared to the reality. The institute was a grey building in a sloping hill of waist-high grass. There was a spot in front where the grass was tamped down, with an old fire pit in the middle. A bunch of crushed and fetid beer cans lay in some powdery cinders. There probably hadn't been a party up there for years. Behind the building, the field fell away to a mass of black locusts. Before they'd grown up, the place must have had a great view of Tucker Mountain, and the view was still okay around the edges of the thorns and branches. The building, the institute, I guess, 
was sort of peculiar. It had an irregular shape, squat and cube-like in the center with a taller, pointy wing to the left, and the outside was all vertical grey clapboards. You sometimes see weird buildings like that in Vermont, designed by architects wanting their work to stand out from the old farmhouses. It was obvious there was nobody there. Obvious, too, that there was no electricity, no phone. My cell didn't have any bars. There had been a call cell phone tower installed a few years back, not too far from there, disguised as a comically oversized pine tree. But I guess I was on a different network. The front door stood open a few inches. I stepped into what I guess you'd call a lobby. It felt like a doctor's office with some vinyl chairs sitting across from a divider desk. It smelled like mold and leaves and clearly many squirrels had lived in there. They'd stuck bundles of dead leaves everywhere. The floor was spongy in a way that made me nervous. Rotted carpet over plywood. There was a kitschy painting on one wall. A covered bridge that could have been by Thomas Kincaid. I had a queasy feeling of seeing into a place that I shouldn't. Not just that I shouldn't have been there because I was trespassing, more that the place itself shouldn't have existed. Buildings aren't meant to be in ruins like that. It was somehow embarrassing. It made me angry. I couldn't really say why. And I decided I would steal exactly one thing from the Institute. The painting was an okay choice, but I was sure there'd be something better in the back. I took each step deeper into the building, slowly not wanting to fall through the floorboards into who knew what. The area behind the desk was full of water-damaged magazines. The Institute had subscribed to Reader's Digest and Time magazine, and an inner door headed deeper into the Institute. I kept thinking of that pompous name and grinning to myself. I guess the Institute had probably been founded by some hippie who hadn't quite understood the strange makeup of Vermont, who had thought maybe they could interest some dairy farmers in whatever new aging nonsense they were peddling. Beyond the reception desk, it was pretty dim. Just a little light came in through a skylight that was full of leaves. I waited for my eyes to adjust, and was glad I did, because I realized I was standing on a balcony, overlooking some kind of sunken space. I couldn't see how long the drop was. Probably not that long, taking into account the slope of the hill, but it wouldn't have been fun to lean on a rotten balcony and find out the hard way. It smelled like the worst, musty basement in the world down there, and didn't seem safe at all. So I edged around the balcony to the left, through another interior door and into what I thought was the wing I'd seen from outside. The whole wing was piled to the ceiling with bins of junk, milk crates stuffed with papers, garbage bags full of clothing, or maybe they were tapestries. Who knows? Anyway, it was yards and yards of thick burgundy fabric. The air was stifling. The smell was worse than the musty well. Mostly sweet, but with a truly foul note. The room I was in had been a kitchen, judging by the formica counter and the cabinets. A big binder sat on the counter. Handwritten on the front of it was The Strigil, an apology. I was starting to feel sick to my stomach. I grabbed the binder and flipped through it. It was full of pages from a dot matrix printer, a little wrinkled and speckled with brown, but mostly legible. I saw something about the physicist, Richard Feynman, which almost cracked me up again. 
I'd been obsessed with him as a kid and must have read his book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, half a dozen times. The binder was mine. I got out of there. The fresh air outside was like a celebration. I went back to the car, ended up walking an hour further along the road through the woods until I crossed the boundary into the town where my dad lived. Where the road was maintained and where buildings existed other than extra vacation homes and abandoned hippies follies. Someone let me use their phone and I called my dad and he came with his truck to help me get the rental car off the ruts. A few days passed. It was a normal visit. I didn't get a chance to look inside the binder until dad was away on the last evening of my stay, busy with his new hobby, Scottish country dancing. I went out to the car and brought in the binder. The page, still smelling a little sweet, laid out the whole story of the Strigil Institute in pretty uncomfortable detail. The founder of the institute, whom I'll call W, went to UVM in the late 1980s. He studied physics and philosophy. He abandoned his doctoral program, though not his obsessions, and came south from Burlington to live on some land owned by his family. When his parents died, he used the money he inherited to build a house, which he eventually turned into the Strigil Institute. Apparently the idea of the Strigil itself came to him in a dream. He heard only the name at first. It was named after a tool used in the ancient world for scraping dirt off the skin. After a month of dreams that echo with the name, he dreamed an image of Strigil itself, and in the morning when he woke up he opened his toolbox and gathered what he needed and built the thing. The birthplace of Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon church based on information from a vision, is only an hour or so away from the institute. Maybe W saw something of Smith in himself. He tried to attract students to the institute, to study the theory of the Strigil, and even caught a few, tempting them with a gorgeous view and a sunlit meditation room, and red robes to make them feel like initiates into something special. But nobody stayed for long, until K. When K came to the institute, he and W figured out how to make the Strigil work. It seemed there was a human element necessary to turn a thing from a dream into a working device. The Strigil was powered in some way by curiosity. W tried to explain what the Strigil could do with the aid of a metaphor he borrowed from Richard Feynman. He went so far as to explain that Feynman must have dreamt of the Strigil too, but hadn't dared build it. Though that's beside the point, I think. Feynman's metaphor was the inside of a brick, the question being, does the inside of a brick exist? Because of course you can't observe it. Break a brick in half to see its interior, and all you'll see is two new surfaces. All you'll get is more outside, and you'll be no closer to any inside. W's Strigil was a device which solved this paradox. A metaphysical scraper, which could slice away the exterior of an object and reveal its interior to the naked eye. Once they had the Strigil working, W and K disagreed about what they should do next. W wanted to bring more students in, while K was content to experiment further with just the two of them. In the end, K won by default. Their sign welcomed visitors, but nobody ever came. Alone, they scraped exteriors away to look inside stones, logs, crystals, apples. The Strigil ran hot with their curiosity, 
and K convinced W that if they kept using it to look inside such mundane objects, it might burn out before they observed anything of importance. They agreed to perform a final set of procedures. W going first, followed by K. Each would use this ritual to scrape away the outer metaphysical surfaces of their faces, revealing their true selves. It worked. W wrote in his apology, The strigil carved away everything we didn't need. The pain and blood were an illusion. We wrapped our heads in bedsheets to stem the false blood. I ignored the false pain happily. If I hadn't recently voluntarily removed my own face, would I conceivably have the wherewithal to type this apology? W went on to explain that they tried to record the results of the procedures with a Polaroid camera, but the photographs they took to one another were also false. They captured none of the clarity we had achieved. So K, who painted in his spare time, did a portrait of W, depicting his clarity as faithfully as he could. W drew a picture of K, but he was unskilled, and the portrayal was unsatisfactory. Afterwards, W wrote, K grew distressed, and took the strigil and Polaroids, and both portraits, down to the container. At the time of his typing the apology, W hadn't talked to K for several days. W wrote that he was ready to fade away entirely now, that he hadn't seen inside himself. His curiosity had been satisfied, he wrote, and after he printed his apology, he would go outside and become one with the landscape. An apology, he concluded, is an explanation, strictly speaking. This is not to say I am sorry. I don't think one can or should be sorry for what occurs in a dream. I heard Dad's truck pull into his driveway, and I put the binder away. He made us some steaks, brought very cheap as a manager's special from Shaw's. When I went to bed that night in the front loft where I used to sleep as a teenager, visiting Dad on alternate weekends, I thought of what W had implied in his apology. There was somewhere I hadn't seen up at the Institute may be the most interesting place. So I stopped at the Institute on my way back to Manchester Airport the next day. It was hotter than the day of my first visit, and the field below of the Grey Institute was humming with insects. I pushed down through the grass to the tree's edge, looking for what W might have meant by the container. It was clear when I found it, a trailer, maybe belonging to an 18-wheeler, set up on cinder blocks and tucked away in the trees. The door at the back was closed. I forced it open. It stank inside, even worse than the house. Everything was jumbled and of course it was dark. My cell phone didn't have any bars, but its flashlight mode worked, so I made my way back into the container. Past boxes full of more burgundy cloth, past heaps of crude clothing sewn from the material. I found a sleeping bag at the very back of the container. An old, dead body lay inside it. The flesh had rotted away, leaving just bones inside a stained robe. The skull was wrapped with a filthy sheet. It was K, I supposed. Some scraps of torn photographs were near the bag. I tried to piece them together for a few minutes, but I didn't really need to complete the puzzle to see what the photos were of. Two men with the skin and meat scraped off their skulls, blood-filled eyeballs staring at the camera. W's sketch of K was there, 
a human form whose face was filled with tiny jagged scribbles, like you might doodle, during a boring meeting at work. Kay's portrait of W was far more elaborate. W wore a dark red robe, and his face had opened like the covers of a book, revealing what Kay saw inside W's head. Swells of colour, like a nebula being sucked into a black hole, or a bunch of orchards all blending together, or a spiral of bright frills and fronds, like a mass of sea anemones. The strigil was there too. It was laughable. Clearly the work of someone seriously deranged. The handle was thick beige plastic. It looked like the receiver of an old rotary phone that had been cut in half with a hacksaw. At one end was a chunky electric plug, at the other a curving metal blade, like a shoehorn. Copper wires had been wrapped in little bundles and glued to the base of the blade, running down into the handle. The workings were sealed with blobs of cork. It had a nice weight in my hand though. The strigil itself was obviously a better souvenir than the apology. On the way back, I stumbled over another red-robed skeleton, hidden in the deep grass. I guess it was W. I made it to the airport and dropped the car off okay. I expected the TSA to confiscate the strigil, but maybe it looked like something else in my luggage, or like nothing at all. When I got home to Nashville, I plugged it in. I sort of hoped it wouldn't work, but it hummed, and I could feel it trembling in my hand. My curiosity burned like a mulch fire. I looked inside stones, logs, crystals, apples, and lots of truths are still hidden from me. But, hopefully, not for much longer now. Two fantastic stories. Looks like the kid in the first story is going to need therapy for life. A decapitated head is not something you just recover from, and blood from his friend is one of those things you probably would feel could never be scrubbed off you, no matter how hard you try. Yikes. And the second story of a man's descent into madness. The Strigil is one curious relic. The ability to slice into the very essence of what makes an object what it is, to peer inside and understand it truly. I was uncertain at the end, I was uncertain at the end as to whether our main character was going to find out what the Strigil could unlock in himself, or if he was going to use it on others just like the Institute intended originally. Absolutely fascinating. Now listeners, if you have two seconds, swing on by my iTunes and leave a review if you want to reach out to me at any point and say hi or share a story, feel free to email me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. And as always, till next time. <laughs>